0: Reflections on the Gospel of John, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 7. That's what validity is. Social validity is the uh, approval or envy of others. And so Warhol says everybody gets 15 minutes of it sooner or later. What's important is not everybody gets... What's important is Warhol, who spent a long time trying to figure out how to get more than 15 minutes of it and was pretty good at that, realized how arbitrary it was. And that's what comes out in that flippant little remark of his, is the arbitrariness of it and the insubstantiality of it. And these invalids, I think we have to see this, these invalids are competing with one another the way we do in the social arena to get validity from the social order only to find, if, if they're lucky enough to you know, get the winning number, only to find that what the social order giveth, the social order taketh away. So all forms of confirmation, validation, and authentication that are achieved by successfully competing in the social order have the effect of weakening and further undermining the self that they purport to reinforce. And I think this is the situation. Jesus says to this man, do you want to be made whole? Or are you getting so accommodated to this game? Like the, the, the inhabitants of Plato's cave, you know, who became so facile at, at analyzing the shadows on the wall that they didn't want to turn around and go to the mouth of the cave where the sunlight was. Because they had invested their lives, their careers, in this game of shadow interpretation. And they didn't want to do it. So Jesus says, "Do you want to be healed, or do you want to be a perpetual seeker? (laughs) Do you really, do you really like this uh, angst-ridden game you're playing? Does it it provide you with the opportunity to strike just the right pose, or do you want to be made whole, stand up? See that kind of tough talk. It's very interesting." to note that this man was invalid, if I can convert the conversation into that kind of uh, analysis, but that he was not congenitally so. He had been in this state for 38 years. What does that mean? Well, nobody knows what that means, uh, and most people who have you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Most exegetes say, well, we just don't know and let it go at that. But I think there's some more we could get from it. And I'm not proposing this as an exegetical uh, argument, but I I think there's something else. I would suggest two references which need not be mutually exclusive. I think they serve to reinforce one another for this number, 38. This gospel uh, evolved in some way. It was written, the first, first parts of it, the first drafts of it uh, were written maybe twenty years, 15 or 20 years before the final drafts were written. I would say when the gospel is first being written, was there anything that was about 38 years old? And if you take the probable date, which is in, the, say, the late 70s, and you go back what happened 38 years ago? The crucifixion. And I think, and of course exegetes who have other considerations to factor in here might not go for this at all. But I suggest to you that if you read this as a reference to the crucifixion, it becomes a very interesting revelation. It was from the crucifixion, if I can use this interpretation, it was from the crucifixion that the invalidity uh, can be dated the it, the purpose of the sacrificial system is to ward off the experience of invalidity at the psychological level at the social level it is to ward off our penchant for sacrificial violence uh, for scapegoating violence but at the psychological level it is to ward off the experience of invalidity and from the date of the crucifixion forward we have the history of invalidity. The psychological crisis beginning at the moment of the crucifixion. Structurally, that's very powerful. Clearly, it begins when Peter hears the cock crow for Peter. It begins for for Paul when he sees Stephen stoned and in the next chapter uh, has his conversion. So structurally, it begins with the crucifixion the cri- the psychological crisis or the crisis of of uh, of invalidity at another level 38 uh is an important number because at the end of 40 years one enters the promised land at the end of 40 whatever it is one the the good thing comes okay at the psychological level you have a man who says now, back to the one who's cured, you have someone who says, Well, look, I've put 40, 38 years into this, and I'm two years away from retirement. You see, it has that kind of quality to How? Why would I abandon this? I've been at it for this long, and now the payoff is right there. I can't afford not to do it. I've put my whole life into this. You see? I've put my whole career into this approach, and how could I possibly? throw it away for this other thing. So at the psychological level, you have that very recognizable human penchant. At another level, however, back to the question of the tension between the Johannine community and the Jewish Christian communities or or the mainline churches, there's a striking difference in the eschatology of these two communities. Eschatology is their understanding of the end time, the eschaton, when was the second coming? Or what, you know, when, was, when was all of this going to be wrapped up? What, you know, when was Jesus going to come again? Christ, the triumphant Christ, and uh, uh, so on. When was the uh, eschaton? The mainline churches were, ha, had what scholars now call future eschatology. That is to say, at some point, that this was a gradual process, and at some point, it would be fulfilled. And I think that's an absolutely valid understanding of the of the historical nature of the revelation. It's historical. It's progressive in that sense. It develops gradually. At the end of the first century, there was a crisis in, in Christianity which had to do with this eschatological expectation because many of the first Christians thought it was going to happen right away and the Johannine community reinterpreted it. Not to say that it's in you know, way into the future, but to say that it's now. It's existential. The eschaton is now. The end time is now. The moment of crisis is now. The moment of decision is now. Everything depends on what you do right now. And I think this is marvelous because you have both of those in the New Testament and I think they both, the paradox is they're both absolutely true. In other words, the eschaton involves the 11th hour. And the eleventh hour, as Kierkegaard points out, is an existential category, not a chronological one. The Church's liturgy, prayer, sacraments, contemplation, works of mercy are all part of a way of trying to inhabit this eleventh hour. Flannery O'Connor had a sense of this in her story about uh, entitled A Good Man's Hard to Find about this psychopath who, who killed this little grandmother and her family. And then his equally sy- a psychopathic sidekick made some s- scurrilous remark about this woman that this guy had just killed. And the, he was called a misfit in the story. The misfit turned to him and said, she'd been a good woman if somebody held a gun to her head all her life. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the eleventh hour. How do we live in the eleventh hour? This is the Gospel of John wants to say to us: the judgment is now, the crisis is now, the decision is now. We are living in the eleventh hour, um, and if we, and the God, this Gospel is saying, the other churches haven't gotten it. The other churches think we're living in the thirty-eighth year. You see, so there's a little polemic there about. The other churches, particularly the, the Jewish Christian churches, many of the churches, even in the late first century, still had very strong Jewish uh, features to them and were still trying to, in, in, as this evangelist sees it, trying to have it both ways, trying to be Jewish and be the <coughs> disciples of Christ at the same time. And uh, this gospel, uh, along with Paul's letters, regards that as uh, an impossibility. So it's not, it's not at all unlikely that this whole story is a, is a metaphorical way for this evangelist to talk about the problematic of Christians trying to remain inside uh, the Jewish uh, cultural arrangements and religious arrangements. When the authorities confront Jesus with this fact that he has broken the Sabbath law by curing on the Sabbath, his response is, he says to them, my father works on the Sabbath, and so do I. Jesus is saying God brings people to life and he takes them into his bosom on the Sabbath. My Father works on the Sabbath, so do I. And they were outraged, again missing the point, profoundly missing the point, picking up only on the fact that he called God Father. Please note, I say not to you, but to the modern world, please note that the members, the, the, the upstanding members of the existing patriarchal system found Jesus' claim to be an abomination. These days we think the idea of God as Father is part of some heinous conspiracy to perpetuate the very patriarchy that it deconstructs. Jesus was not saying, he was not preaching theology. He was not saying, let me explain something to you benighted people. God is a father as opposed to a mother or anything else. He was saying to people whose whole system of loyalty was patriarchal, who, be, who who looked to Abraham as their father and Moses as their father and the chief priest as their father and the and the clan leader as their father and their own household father as their father and the whole system of the whole hierarchical system based on Father as an organizing principle, that the cultural organizing principle of Father. And Jesus was saying, I'll tell you something, I have only one Father, namely only one <coughs> loyalty, and that is God, and in, the, and, and in the face of that loyalty, I have no regard for this system of yours, namely the patriarchal system. He was not saying God is a father. He's saying my father is God. Now, no doubt Jesus had an experience of intimacy with God that could only be uh, properly uh, rendered by him talking about his father or his Abba, which is even more intimate. No doubt, but we have to be clear about the, the revolutionary nature of his insistence that his father was God and that he was opting out of that that whole cultural arrangement and the father that played a, a role at the heart of it. He said earlier, my father works on the Sabbath, so do I. And now he explores that a little more. He, he takes the metaphor of apprenticeship. In traditional societies... Kids didn't get to be, the, you know, 15 and, and decide where they were going to go to college and what they were going to study, you know. The p- apprenticeship system was locked in. One, if one's father was a tent maker, one learned to make tents at the father's elbow. If one's father was a, was a shepherd, one learned that, or if a uh, carpenter or this or that or whatever. The apprenticeship system, and the same with daughters and mothers, the apprenticeship system was part of life. And Jesus is simply saying, as he says in chapter 8, I quoted it earlier and I'll refer to it again later. He's he's simply saying, you're learning at your father's elbow. I have some things to tell you. Parentheses, I have some things to tell you about your father later on that will shock you. Namely, he's a liar and murderer from the beginning. But he says, I learned from my father's elbow. He says, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. We have to understand that the root of this image here is apprenticeship. And then he says, for the father loves the son. And here he doesn't use the theological term, uh, the the cognate of the the word agape. He uses filio, which is an intimate family kind of friendship, affectionate verb. The father loves the son. Tender, love, care. And he shows him everything he does himself. Again, the son only learns what he sees the father doing. Now, this is Jesus saying, the scales have fallen from my eyes. I look out and I see the work of God in this world. And I know what it is. I know what the work of God is. When you guys get into a big crowd and get, whoop it up and find out, find the, 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 you know, the woman in adultery and get, go grab the stones, you think you're doing your father's work. Well, you are but you're not doing God's work because God's my Father and I see God's work in the world and God's work in the world is making people whole, making them come alive, validating them, loving them, the tender work of God in the world. He said, I see my Father's work in the world and I learn from what I see. Not even Jesus is exempt from this mimetic uh, nature of human existence. He said, I simply learn from what I see my Father doing. No doubt through others, you see. But he understood it was God's work. This is like Pirveliak Khan saying, it's God whom every lover loves and his beloved and God in each of us who does the loving. One can see this happening in this human milieu, but realize that it is actually the loving God at work in the human environment. And Jesus said, I've seen that. And I am simply working at my father's elbow to learn the craft, so that I can perform it well. Just as when Jesus offers himself as the new temple, he doesn't do it in a vacuum. Likewise, when he says, I'm studying at the Father's elbow, I'm the Father's apprentice, I'm going to do the work of the Father, only the work the Father gives me, and I'm going to be the perfect apprentice to the Father. He does that in the context of the fact that the Father arrangements that you have had so far are now going to be deconstructed the gospel revelation will destroy them. And, and uh, there's a passage in Luke 12 which refers explicitly to this, and it's the one that, gives, uh, that causes everybody to hem and haw and shuffle. What in the world? Have we suddenly abandoned the merciful Jesus? He says in that passage, you think I have come to bring peace. I have come, in fact, to sow division. For from now on, five members of a family will be divided three against two and two against three father against son son against father mother against daughter daughter against mother mother against son's wife son's wife against her mother-in-law division what is going on have we uh, suddenly this is an apocalyptic passage no doubt about it what we have to realize is he is saying all institutions that are sacrificial even the most intimate ones, if they remain sacrificial, will be thrown into crisis. When he says a family of five will be divided two against three and three against two, the alternative to that is a family of five united under the following formula, five against one. And the one is invisible because the one might be the Canaanites or the one might be the sinners, but the the one is erased. And so we do not even see the one. So when we look at it, the, the one is under the pile of stones. So when we look at the family of five, we say, or the social unit of five in harmony, we don't see the victim. But he says, it, to the extent, I think you have to read this into this text, to the extent that a even so intimate a social institution as the family continues to function sacrificially continues to generate its its harmony at the expense of somebody outside the unit or something outside the unit then it will fall into chaos and we all know by the way, and I'm not talking about people being explicitly sacrificial, but we all know in our families when there's tension between members of a family how how uh, how given we are to find Something to talk about that involves the some scurrilous activity of somebody outside our our community, and to say, yeah, well, and then and by finding that we can find some common ground and eliminate the tension between us, so that it's a way of curing attention social tensions, but at the expense of somebody outside. Even though no stones are literally thrown. Maybe no harm is literally done, but it is still caving into the sacrificial system. And Jesus is saying, we will be unable to do that. We will begin to have moral qualms about it. We, it will not work, etc., etc., so that we'll have two against three and three against two. Instead of five against one, one being invisible. Well, what I'm about to do is a, it could be regarded as a sampler of things to come. Uh, after we do the Gospel of John, I have a whole list of things I want, would love to have us Uh, Investigate in our ongoing attempt to try to understand what the what the nature of the self as it is revealed in the New Testament, and so I'm going to draw on a couple of things that we may return to later in more detail. Uh, Jesus says, "And as for human approval, it means nothing to me." And we have to understand this: as for human approval, it means nothing to me. Has always to be understood in light of Jesus' relationship to his Father. It cannot be understood otherwise. And any attempt to achieve that, that uh, state of social autonomy without coming to grips with Jesus' dependence on his Father is going to eventually become either laughable or tragic, which is what it has become in our world. We all say... As for human approval, it means nothing to me. Uh, The world has become, the Western world has become one great chorus, singing, all singing off key and all singing uh, in in a concerted effort to be uh, individuals distinct from the crowd. We're all in chorus singing as for human approval. It means nothing to me. So we don't even, in a way, understand what Jesus meant by this. All we have to do in order to understand what he meant by this is to admit to ourselves that when we say it, it's not true. And to allow ourselves to imagine that when he said it, it was. And therein lies the profound difference. As for human approval, it means nothing to me. Ha, Jesus says, I have come in the name of my Father. This is, by the way, this is in the context of the, of the Jewish authorities saying, look, he's referring to God as his Father, missing the point. And he says, I have come in the name of my Father, and you refuse to accept me. If anyone else comes in his own name, you accept him immediately. I'd like to launch from that into this Uh, extended aside, about the crisis of the modern self. Perhaps the quickest way to understand the difference at the psychological level between what Paul calls the new Anthropos and the old Anthropos is to compare two books both with the same name, Uh, one written at the end of the 4th century by Augustine called Confessions and the other written at the end of the uh, 18th century by Rousseau. Augustine begins his Confessions with these words. You are great, O Lord. O Lord. Right away he acknowledges his discipleship. You are great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your strength, infinite is your wisdom. Humans want to praise you. Humans who are but a part of your creation and who carry with them their mortality, carry evidence of their sin and evidence that you oppose the proud, yet human beings, a part of your creation, want to praise you. And you encourage us to delight in praising you because you made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in thee. First of all, we want to praise you. Last week, I think it was I talked about the, the transference problematic in psychotherapy. The therapist, uh, the, 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 uh, the patient has a transference onto the therapist and, and psychological sciences understand that some kind of transference has to take place or else no cure. The question is, who's going to receive the transference? Well, the therapist receives it. Then the therapist, under the illusion that the, the, the self is an individual, knows he must give it back. The therapist knows it doesn't belong to him. He knows he can't, he can't uh, it's too much. So he tries to hand it back to the to the patient. The patient doesn't want it. And I said, you know, I think the patient's right and the therapist is wrong. The therapist is not wrong to try to get rid of it. It doesn't belong to him. But he's wrong to try to think he can get it back inside the patient. The patient has more sense than that at a, at a gut level. He doesn't want it back. Augustine says, we want to praise you. And it's a, I think that therein lies the understanding of the transference problematic. The patient doesn't want it back. We want to be disciples, not because we're slaves and we want to follow some, some uh, you know Hitler or some tyrant. That happens. That happens. That that phenomenon plays into this need of ours to be disciples, no doubt. Uh, but it is not some terrible shortcoming on our part. It is simply our recognition at a nonverbal level that we are creatures and that we can only become fully creative by recognizing our creaturehood and submitting ourselves. What we want is what Gabriel Marcel talked about when he spoke of subordinating the self to a superior reality, a reality at my deepest level more truly me than I am myself. An act of subordination which has the effect, Marcel says, of abolishing the tension between the self and other. That is to say, it solves the social crisis that the sacrificial system solves. It does the same thing. Discipleship does what sacrifice does, or you could say sacramental existence does what sacrificial existence does, but it does it without a victim and without delusion. Well, that's Augustine. He says... However, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, which is marvelous. I mean, that ought to be... That Maybe future historians will have that as the banner over their consideration of the 20th century. What we have to realize about Augustine's speaking of restlessness is that the source of the restlessness is the Christian revelation. Remember, I, I suggested that the invalid in that story in chapter 5, was invalid for 38 years, beginning with the, re- with the uh, crucifixion. Likewise, our restlessness, our experience of invalidity, our experience of existential confusion goes back to the crucifixion. Not because the crucifixion and the Christian revelation have it out for us, but because they de- it deprives us of the kind of social and psychological assurances that the sacrificial system provides. So the restlessness that Augustine is talking about is not something inherent in us. In a way, it's inherent in us, but it's not inherent in us as long as the sacrificial system obtains. But as soon as it's breached, then we begin to experience the anxiety and confusion and restlessness uh, that can only find rest when we return to a, uh, a Lord, a discipleship relationship to the real Lord. That's how I think that's a paraphrase of Augustine. I'm not trying to sing a new song. I'm just trying to paraphrase what I think is in Augustine. Rousseau begins his confessions with these words. Compare them to Augustine. I have resolved on an enterprise which has no precedent and which, once completed, will have no imitator. My purpose is to display, notice the verb, to my kind a portrait in every way true to nature and the man I shall portray will be myself, simply myself. I know my own heart and understand my fellow man, but I am made unlike anyone I have ever met. I will even venture to say that I am, un, that I am like no one in the whole world. I may be no better, but at least I am different." End quote. Jesus said, "'I have come in the name of the Father,' and you will not accept me. If anyone else comes in his own name, you accept him immediately. And that is precisely what happened with Rousseau and the spell that Rousseau cast on the Western world. And the more that I have been doing this research for the last six or eight months, the more I realize how profound that spell is. We are living under the spell cast by Rousseau. I don't want to dump the whole thing on him and turn him into a scapegoat. He, he manifested it in a way that, that became hypnotic for the Western world. We fell under his understanding of what the self is, the romantic, autonomous, forlorn uh, self. And I think to understand the modern crisis, we have to understand Rousseau. And I'm not going to try to do that today, but I would like to do it at some point. But I'm going to touch on a few things. Like I say, this is kind of a sampler of things to come. Rousseau died in 1778. His effects, what I want to do is just take a couple of little instances of the effects that he had. Now, uh, as you know, as a matter of fact, I'm even going to quote in just a very few minutes Kierkegaard in a very positive way. I have a great affection for much of the writing of Kierkegaard, but uh, Kierkegaard... Undoubtedly, uh, was fell under. How, whether he fell under it directly from Rousseau, I don't know. Uh, but Kierkegaard is someone who represents uh, this this spell that Rousseau cast. I don't think there's anything better. The, what I'm about to read to you is a passage from Kierkegaard. I think it's from his journals. I think it's the best introduction. It would be the best uh, uh, epigraph as an inter- that, to be placed as an introduction to the reading of. Rousseau's Confessions that we can find, I think. Here's what Kierkegaard said. I live alone, out of sight, but the idea of isolation, which was central for Kierkegaard, is neither a logical nor the most exact expression of the, idea, of the real idea. But, he says, to be alone and then to have all others against me that is, in the dialectical sense, to have them all all for me, for to have them all ranged on the other side helps to make it apparent that one is alone. That is what it means to be dialectical, and that is the victory. In other words, to be alone, but to have them all arrayed against me. That's the victory. Now, what victory is that? Where, how could that be regarded as a victory by... It can only be regarded as a victory in terms of the Christian revelation. Kierkegaard is usurping the place of the victim for its epistemological... Remember my friend Andrew McKenna uh, speaks of the victim's epistemological privilege. The victim can see the world clearer than anybody else. Kierkegaard found that out. So did Rousseau. And they both found a way to locate themselves at the place of the victim without having to undergo any particular hardship. Now, they, were both, they both had enemies, uh, but no, nobody was getting flogged or anything serious. Kierkegaard says, speaking of the others, he says, They are busy insulting me and making fun of me, but without realizing that they are caught in my plan. And when all is finished, they will be marked by me once and for all. He's exploiting the victim's position. His isolation is really an elaborate ploy to take advantage of the place of the victim. Kierkegaard uh, died in 1855. Rilke, I don't know Rilke's dates exactly, but uh, Rilke, this was when Rilke was 21 years old. That's more or less the turn of the century. Let's okay? say at the end of the 19th century. A companion of Rilke's wrote this about Rilke walking around the streets of Prague as a, as a 21-year-old. He went about wearing an old-world frock coat, black cravat, and broad-brimmed black hat, clasping a long-stemmed iris and smiling, oblivious of the passerby, a forlorn smile into ineffable horizons. That's the Rousseau-esque self in its its shabbiest, slightly post-adolescent manifestation. Notice, smiling, Oblivious of the passerby, this is absolutely essential. the 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 the, auto- the romantic self the autonomous self uh, must always be oblivious of the passerby. I don't need you, thank you. But I wonder how how m- how long Rilke had to practice that smile in a mirror in order to get just exactly that quality out of it. It's the claim of autonomy. But all you have to do is read carefully. First of all, these claims to autonomy, even and I don't want to be too hard on Kierkegaard because I love him so much, but Kierkegaard and Rousseau both were writing voluminously, you see, saying in every one of their writings, I don't care if anybody's paying attention to me. Rousseau has had such a powerful influence. All of us are living and moving and having our ghostly existence in the world that Rousseau made for us. It, it, we are in the grip of a Rousseau-esque understanding of the self. And what I want to show is how crazy it's becoming and how in, how urgent it is for us to bail out of it into something more substantial. F- for one thing, it will not forever be forlorn and uh, oblivious as it was in this uh, uh, turn-of-the-century uh, Rilke situation in rocke's own case you know kierkegaard says that the age of resentment we we we're living in the age of resentment because we have lost the ability we have we have lost happy admiration and all we have left is unhappy envy you see and we and i think kierkegaard understood that nobody can understand it except when they've experienced it themselves but all real insight comes from the act of contrition and Kierkegaard understood that about himself and he saw that there was resentment in this and that the the, the ability to admire which is the ability to be a disciple was being lost and with no discipleship we were becoming resentful in the same way that a a patient resents the therapist who's trying to give the, the transference back to him. We're stuck with it and we're resentful we are incapable of becoming disciples. First of all, we see no one to whom we would submit and the idea of submitting has become anathema to it. There's a little hint of this, by the way, in in Rilke's fourth elegy, which was written considerably later. He's gone to the theater and a dancer comes on stage and here's what Rilke says. Then the dancer came. Not him. Enough. However lightly he moves, he's costumed made up, an ordinary man who hurries home and walks in through the kitchen. I can't stand it. (laughs) He said, I want, I came here. Remember, uh, uh, Augustine says, we long to praise you. We want to praise you. Well, Rilke goes to the theater hoping to have a little experience of that. And a guy walks on stage dancing and he sees, oh, it's just another one of those human beings. (laughs) I can't stand it anymore, he says. And then he goes on I won't abide these half filled human masks. Better the puppet. It at least is full. I'll put up with the stuffed skin, the wire, the face that is nothing but appearance. But save me from these mere humans. Better the puppet than to fall into some kind of mimetic. Submission to another mere human. But on the other hand, the heart aches to praise the Creator. Right. We are creatures made in the image likeness of, of the Creator. We ache to be in discipleship relationship to God. And finding no God, no transcendent, we find each other and it drives us crazy. It drives us crazy. Finally, Not finally, I have one more after this. But uh, in Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, there's a a magnificent study of this situation at its most extreme. And here's what the Underground man says. He has this one uh, hated enemy and his hated enemy's friends. And uh, he's in their presence. And he he says this. And they ignore him, you know. And so he says, I assume the most carefree poses and waited impatiently until they should be the first to speak to me. But, alas, they did not. I smiled contemptuously. By the way, you notice Rilke smiled a smile that was oblivious of the passerby. But in Dostoevsky, the underground man, is now smiling contemptuously. He's moved from, Kierkegaard talks about happy admiration to unhappy envy, he's moved a little further down the road. So he says, I smiled contemptuously and paced up and down the other side of the room, directly behind the sofa, along the wall, from the table to the stove and back again. I wanted to show them, with all my might, that I could get along without them. Meanwhile, I deliberately stomped my boots, thumping my heels. But all this was in vain. They paid no attention. Once and only once, they turned to me. Precisely when Zerkov, that's his hated enemy, when Zerkov started in about Shakespeare and I suddenly burst into contemptuous laughter, I snorted so affectedly and repulsively that they broke off their conversation immediately and stared at me in silence for about two minutes in earnest, without laughing, as I paced up and down from the table to the stove, while I paid not the slightest bit of attention to them. But nothing came of it. They didn't speak to me. A few minutes later, they abandoned me again. Heaven for him was that two minutes. And here's what that two minutes consisted of. You know, Andy Warhol says 15. This guy gets two. Here's what it consists of. They stopped their conversation immediately, stared at me in silence for about two minutes in earnest and without laughing as i paced up and down from table to stove while i paid not the slightest bit of attention to them mm-hmm. that is the rousseauesque heaven that is the rousseauesque heaven it lasted for 2 minutes and he said but nothing came of it this is the, this is a form this is the kind of remember i talked about the guy being invalid this is the f- social validation and we see the results of the social validation, at least two minutes' worth, it evaporates like that. He says, nothing came of it. They didn't speak to me. A few minutes later, they abandoned me again. The clock struck eleven. Isn't that interesting? And Just in terms of Dostoevsky's keen insight into that, the idea of the eleventh hour. And then he says, get this, after the clock strikes eleven, he says, I was so exhausted, so broken, that I'd have slit my own throat to be done with it all. You see that? It collapses. That attempt to validate the self in the social arena by striking the Rousseau-esque pose so exacerbates the psychological crisis that it becomes nihilistic. The, the, the uh, misfit in O'Connor's story said she would have been a good woman if somebody held a gun to her all, all her life. This figure, this Russo S figure, at the 11th hour, becomes so broken, he says, that he's ready to put the gun to his own head and not just hold it there but pull the trigger. This is the crisis of the self in the modern world. And it, we may not see it so much in our generation, but we are seeing it in our children's generation in a very striking way. And I, I, I fear it will in the next generation after that, unless something is done. It could be unbelievably catastrophic. Here is a story, the last in this little series of things. Here is a story that was in the New York Times uh, a week and a half ago. The Times is doing a series of stories on children that are struggling with urban life. And this is a story about a 12-year-old girl in Brooklyn. And the story begins with the following two paragraphs. I'll uh, omit the girl's last name. Crystal, this is the 12-year-old, Crystal wears two streaks of bright magenta in her hair. They hang strands of Kool-Aid That's what they call those things. They hang strands of Kool-Aid down her loose long strands of blonde like a seventh grader's twist of punk. Don't come too close, they say. Don't mess with me. Don't tell me what to do. I'm not like you. She's the great-great-granddaughter of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The article goes on. At her Brooklyn public school, A Kaleidoscope of Teenage Rage. A Kaleidoscope of Teenage Rage. We accept that. We accept, oh, teenage must be rage, must be, why? Where is the rage? Kierkegaard says, Resentment is the constituting principle of modern age because we no longer know how to engage in happy admiration and all we have left is unhappy envy. That's the source of resentment, or r- rage, finally becomes rage. And this public school in Brooklyn is a kaleidoscope of teenage rage. So at this school, this kaleidoscope of teenage rage, Crystal's teachers see a young girl with an attitude. This is the word we have for this nowadays. This is in your, an in-your-face attitude, right? They, her teachers, focus on her slouch, her Kool-Aid streaks, her grunge clothes, and sullen anger, and see all the signs of trouble. But those vivid slashes of Kool-Aid colored hair say the most, communicating the basic paradox of adolescence, the double-edged message, quote, bug off and look at me, End quote. Now, This story says this is the basic paradox of adolescence. It is not the basic paradox of adolescence. We reassure ourselves by telling ourselves it's the basic paradox of adolescence. Oh, we're having another version of the generation gap or some such thing. This is a terrible crisis and it is not something uh, inherent. It is a psychological crisis of the first order and it is because our, our way of constituting social and psychological reality has collapsed and in the interim we have fallen for the Rousseau-esque solution, a claim to a kind of autonomy that does nothing but exacerbate the problem and make us sullen and resentful and envious. Jesus, in chapter 5, of the Gospel of John, says, How can you believe since you look to one another for approval and are not concerned with the approval that comes only from God? Approval here means validation, substantiation. The question is self-substantiation. How does the self substantiate itself? And here, the Johannine Jesus is saying, how can you possibly understand what it means to believe? In this gospel, believe means to eat. As to say, believe means to break down the distinction between the believer and the Lord. I I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. That's belief. That's what this gospel has to say. It's very outrageous and shocking to our world, but it's, it's the essence of the message of this gospel. Buber says, In pure relation... You have felt yourself to be simply dependent as you are able to feel in no other relation and at the same time simply free as in no other time or place. You have felt yourself both creaturely and creative. You had one feeling then no longer limited by the other but you had them both together limitlessly and together. The experience of being creaturely and creative. Of being... Uh, dependent and free. This is the mystery of the of the hypostatic self. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The philosophers are now talking about the crisis of subjectivity. Someday we will realize, maybe, that the word subject is both a noun and a verb. And you can't have the noun without the verb. It's that simple. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham ever was, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and left the temple. And I want to end on that very quickly. The attempt to stone Jesus is structurally indistinguishable from the attempt to seize him by force and make him king. Both are examples of a crowd thrown into crisis by the culture-shattering and self-shattering effect of Jesus' message and personality, spontaneously trying to reconstitute itself by turning its fear and fascination into unanimous adulation in the case of the attempted coronation and into unanimous animosity in the case of the attempted lapidation. You know, lapidation is the word for stoning. It's very interesting to me that in both cases in the Gospel of John, when uh, Jesus is threatened by stoning, he is inside the temple precinct. I would ask this, again structurally, where do the stones come from? He's inside the temple. I'm not imagining historical event. I'm, actually, I'm talking about the structure of the gospel. Remember how I described the origin of the temple being the sacrificial pile of stones. The temple becomes a very polished, marvelous, stately edifice which is simply the elaboration of that pile of stones. From the moment they try to stone Jesus, which is to say crucify him, the stones with which they are going to do so have to be dislodged from the walls of the sacrificial edifice itself. That is to say, the act of stoning, which is the act of lapidation, becomes, for the sacrificial shrine, the act of dilapidation. The only stones available are the stones that are part of the sacrificial edifice. And so as the stones are taken out to be thrown, the walls come crumbling down. It's an absolutely marvelous moment describing human anthropology. The lapidation that led up to that moment, the decisive thing revealed in the New Testament... And the progressive dilapidation that begins afterward. A dilapidation which will only end, as it's said in, Go- in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, when not a single stone will be left on another. What I want to do today is just talk about this little, strange little uh, insertion in the Gospel of John, which is the beginning of chapter 8. Some modern Bibles don't even print it anymore because it's not a. It's not from this evangelist. <coughs> Most scholars think it comes from a, a Lucan uh, source originally, or it has a, it has the feel of a Lucan piece. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Uh, but it only appears in the New Testament in this one place, so if we eliminate it on strictly exegetical grounds, uh, we have to stick it in the Apocrypha or something, and we don't get the benefit of it at nearly as much. So fortunately, the... Holy Spirit had it be, that it would drift and find a home in the, in the Johannine literature where uh, it's a little bit out of place perhaps, but uh, nevertheless we have it. It's part of the canon. And I think it's an extremely important part of the canon. In a way, it is a kind of, it's a little pericope with no home. It's uh, it's almost like the stone the builders rejected. It has, a I think, a marvelous centrality and marginality at the same time, which is the, which is the mystery of the biblical revelation. So I want to give it more credence because of its curious uh, lineage rather than less credence. And then uh, beyond that, the only thing in the, in the John's Gospel that I want to talk about is, uh, briefly at the end, I want to talk about the Good Shepherd discourse. But I want to lead up I want to take most of the morning leading up to this little story about the woman caught in adultery and to try to put it into, into its uh, context historically and biblically. One of the tape subscribers, who's a friend of mine, Peter Cunningham, wrote me a note. Peter's involved in uh, work in Haiti and has been for many years. And he wrote me a little note uh, after hearing whatever tape it was that had the discussion of the pharmakos phenomenon in ancient Greece. And he said, I was fascinated by the pharmakos syndrome. Sadly, I've seen Haitian kids throwing stones at them, old people, cripples. Are we by nature stone throwers? Well, when I read that, I, I remembered that. Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin said are we do you think little babies are sinful we come into the world as sinners and uh, and Hobbes who's the tiger trying to walk across the log says "Uh, no we're just quick studies Uh, and I I felt I in my mind when I read that thing from Peter I thought are we stone throws we're quick studies and uh, somebody throws that stone and it, and the, we are so quick that it becomes a, a unanimous phenomenon very quickly. But uh, since we're on the subject of uh, cartoons, I I brought, so, no. I'm the recipient of cartoons. I'm trying to make myself uh, famous as the collector of cartoons, so people will send them to me. And uh, I, some people did. Uh, one of the. One of the fellows that's involved in this, this uh, colloquium that I'm involved in uh, that I saw at Chapel Hill gave me uh, some cartoons. And uh, I want to share them with you. The fir- or, or some of them, anyway. The first one is uh, a Garfield. You know, Garfield the Cat cartoon. This has to do with um, what generates... I guess it goes back to Peter's question over you know, stone throwers. It has to do with... Uh, what is the process that generates the stone throwing? And we know this, but the, I'm just giving cartoon uh, verification. Uh, so th- here's, the, here's the cartoon. Here's Garfield with his master, I use the word advisedly, whose name I think is John. I don't read this cartoon often enough to know. Anyway, uh, his master's eating lunch and Garfield's glaring at it, thinking, your, lun- your lunch looks better than mine. So he moves over and starts to eat, I guess, cat food and Garfield starts to eat his lunch. Then he sits on the sofa and Garfield looks at him and Garfield thinks, I want to sit there. So he moves over to the other side of the sofa and Garfield sits there. And Then Garfield looks over at him and says, your end of the couch looks more comfortable than mine. So he dutifully gets gets off and sits on the floor. Garfield sits where he's been sitting and and then looks over at him and says, oh sure, hog the floor. Well, there'll be some, I want to bring some biblical stuff in this morning that, that carries on that theme. There's one other one, well, one other one from this friend, uh, Rusty Palmer, which is from the Lockhorns cartoon, you know, the, the cockney couple that are always fighting. And he's sitting in his, in his armchair in a very grumpy mood, and she's standing in front of him, holding out her dress, and she says, "I had to take the dress. Two other women were waiting to buy it." So that's the, that, those are, those are uh, indications of uh, the way our desire is mediated, our acquisitive desire is mediated. And we talk, we've talked in the past about how uh, the nature of that generation of desire is such that it very easily becomes resentment uh, when we don't get our way uh, and so on. And the and then the question is, what do we do with our resentment? And then we move in the direction of the of the stoning or the sacrificial resolution. So finally, the last cartoon. This is from the New Yorker, and it's called "Further Cuts." Uh, and here you have the the volcano smoking in the background, and these Paleolithic types hunched over talking to each other. And uh, here in the foreground is this very scraggly dog walking by and so these guys are saying to each other let's quit helping those who don't need help stop supporting failed programs, cut entitlements and one of them looks over his shoulder and says and offer the dog to the gods (laughs) so anyway those are uh, cartoon uh, versions of the dilemma I guess Well, I wanted to take my cue this morning from something that uh, Girard said in the symposium in the mid to late 80s on the the role of violence in the origin of human culture and consciousness. And in response to some comments by other scholars, uh, Girard said the following. In the Hebrew Bible, there is clearly a dynamic that moves in the direction of the rehabilitation of victims. But it is not a cut-and-dried thing. Rather, it is a process underway, a text in travail. It is not a chronologically progressive process, but a struggle that advances and retreats. I see the Gospels, says Girard, as the climactic achievement of that trend and therefore as the essential text in the cultural upheaval of the modern world. Now, he makes a leap there in that last sentence that requires some connections, you see. Uh, The gospel is the culmination of this process of rehabilitating the victims, and therefore it is the essential text in the cultural upheaval of the modern world. It occurred to me the other day that if we took... that it would be very interesting to to produce a study of how often in a given body of journalistic literature, how often the word scapegoat is used beginning in the year 1900 and coming up to today. My guess is that it would be used more each year that there would be a gradual but but decided increase in the use of that word as we, the further we got into the 20th century. In other words, we have begun to talk about the process of scapegoating the process of scapegoating is becoming a conscious phenomenon we of course cannot see our own scapegoating we are still blind to that but we are becoming uh, increasingly able to see other people's activities as having a scapegoating feature in other words we just don't don't just recognize it as violence or cruelty or or justice, or whatever it might be, we begin to see the scapegoating dynamic in what we might not have seen as scapegoating in the past. We still don't see our own, by and large. Uh, Or we participate in very convoluted versions of it. it. Still in all, something is happening in our time. And it's leading to what Girard calls the cultural upheaval of the modern world. The rehabilitation of the victim throws the world into the kind of crisis that the scapegoat system existed to forestall. So that's the situation we're in. Well, what I would like to do is go back, as Gerard uh, argues, and I think he's right, that that uh, force of history is born of the biblical revelation. That the driving force in what we now call history uh, begins with the Bible, the biblical revelation, and increasingly, it will be that force which, which uh, shapes history in the future. How we deal with the revelation of our sacrificiality, and uh, how we accommodate to a world in which we can no longer do that. So, what I'd like to do, and I think the story of the woman caught in adultery in John's Gospel is almost paradigmatic for the situation that we're in. And so what I'd like to do is lead up to it and and then discuss it briefly. And I want to begin with some Old Testament text. Gerard says the Old Testament is a text in travail, moving away from victimization but always never quite extricating itself from that system. So I want to use three Old Testament stories as a prelude to the story of the woman caught in adultery in John. The first one I want to use from the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan. There, lo and behold, in front of them is Jericho, and they attack Jericho, and Jer- the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. It's very liturgical the way it's presented in the, in the text. But... Joshua puts Jericho under the ban. Now the ban was the central feature of what we call a holy war. And the ban meant that everything in Jericho had to be destroyed, men, women, children, domestic animals, everything leveled, burnt, destroyed. But the point is that the holy war or the ban on a commandment for utter destruction was part of a cultic system. It was not a military maneuver. It was a religious phenomenon and not a strictly military phenomenon. I don't want to really... T- i did not, not try to talk about the ban, I, but since it's here, we, it, I have to talk about it just a tiny bit. We can say the ban was part of the cultic apparatus to destroy the sacrificial victim, Totally. Whatever its religious justification, the question is, how did it function? Why? It must have had a function. This is how we have to read these things. It must have been functional. It must have produced something. Otherwise, why would they do it? And it's quite obvious what it produced. is that It eliminated the possibility of bringing booty back from the war. Why do you not want to bring booty back from the war? Well, read the Iliad and find out. The Iliad begins... When the Greeks have just come from a campaign, a victorious campaign, they've brought back uh, 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 slave concubines of the conquered people. They've brought back other uh, uh, you know, loot from their raid. And the chief uh, general and the commander-in-chief fall into a terrible argument over who got what share of the booty. In other words, bringing the booty back into the camp creates rivalry, for not only for the, the the stuff itself, but for the prestige that attaches to it foremost. The, we're here to talk about the Gospel of John, not the Old Testament and not Iliad. But I have to say, I want to read to you a little passage from the Iliad, if you don't mind, just on this question of, of um, the ban. Achilles, in that first book of the Iliad, says to Agamemnon in great heat, Agamemnon's the commander, Achilles is the the most powerful general. Achilles says, I have seen more action hand-to-hand in those assaults than you have, and when the time for sharing comes, the greater share is always yours. Worn out with battle, I carry off some trifle to my ships. Well, this time I make sail for home, better to take now to my ships. Why linger cheated of winnings to make wealth for you? And Agamemnon, equally in heat, says, I the question is this concubine that Achilles has brought back, Briseis, and whether or not she will have to be given to the commander, you see, because he lost his. And so Agamemnon says to uh, Achilles, I myself will call for Briseis at your hut and take her, flower of young girls that she is, your prize to show you here and now who is the stronger and make the next man sick at heart, if any think of claiming equal place with me. So you see this incredible dynamic that is set up now. There's a showdown. And then, the, and then Homer says, I'm using the Fitzgerald translation, but I think I'll change the word. He says, A pain like grief weighed on the son of Peleus, that's Achilles, it's really menis, which is the word for anger, which are a kind of resentful rage is what it is. And in his shaggy breast... This is Achilles. In his shaggy breast, this way and that, the passion of his heart ran. Should he draw a long sword from hip, stand off the rest and kill in single, combat the great son of Atreus, or hold his rage and check and give it time? In other words, should he nurse his resentment or give vent to it right there? If you give vent to it, it's no longer resentment; it's simply vengeance. But to nurse it is resentment, and to and to build that resentment until it's powerful enough to accomplish its goal. You see, well, it's that that the ban is designed to avoid. In other words, if we have to fight this battle, we will fight the battle and come back from it with no booty whatsoever, because the booty may cause this uh, may cause us to lose this sense of unity that fighting the battle created. See? So, back to Joshua. A ban is placed on Jericho, and then it just says at the end of the that Jericho's defeated, but at the end of the battle it simply says uh, the ban was violated. But we don't find anything else about that really, and that's obviously written back into the stories. So what happens is they they then attack another town called Ai I. and in this second attack they are repelled and suffer a military humiliation and it is then that they are told they are told that the reason they failed becau- was because the ban had been violated at the in the campaign against uh, Jericho in other words it becomes clear Now, the reason they failed at I was not because of a failure of military might, but a failure of military morale. The text says the people lost heart and their courage melted away. So it's a question of of, uh, esprit de corps. They lacked an esprit de corps in this campaign. And they needed, therefore, if they were to have successful campaigns in the future, they needed to regenerate a sense of esprit de corps. Well, they had been using battles against the uh, Canaanites as a way of generating esprit de corps, and now the battles themselves were not generating it. So how are they going to generate it in order to have successful battles? Well, they realized there's only one one command uh, in the battle against Jericho, and that was do not bring back any booty, a ban. So obviously this has been violated. Obviously there is a culprit in their midst the culprit can only have been guilty of the last command. There was only one last command, don't bring back any booty. Obviously, somebody brought back booty. I'm trying to, what I'm trying to suggest is the, the way the logic works backward. Okay? Now, somebody brought back, violated the ban, brought back booty. Who? Well, we have to decide. The procedure for deciding was, you guessed it, drawing lots. So all the, the, all the tribes came up, they drew lots, to, the lot fell to a certain tribe. They, that tribe came up, they drew lots, the lot fell to a certain clan. That clan came up, they drew lots, the, the lot fell to a certain man and unfortunately his whole family. And it was determined that Akon had violated the ban. Akon was brought before the people. Joshua formally and vociferously condemned him and then the text simply said, all Israel stoned him. And then they had a campaign against I, which was successful. No problem with morale, no problem with losing courage or a breakdown of the esprit de corps, etc., etc. Okay, well, this is all we all know about this. What's interesting is that it says, all Israel stoned him. Uh, the stoning was the regeneration of that unanimity. There is a, a, a midrash somewhere in which the rabbis say, if everyone thinks he's guilty, he must be innocent. Now this is really an incredible insight and it's it ha- doesn't have to do with moral innocence or, or guilt. It has to do with the structure of things. If everybody thinks he's guilty, there must be some... Uh, there must be something at play other than judicial reason. There's some other phenomenon generating that consensus other than simply reason and insight and inquiry and uh, judicial process and so on and so forth. Those things do not generate that level of unanimity. Something else is at work. And and the Midrash understands that th- that that something else is creating a guilt which does not exist at least the person might be might be legally guilty but in some structural way you see it's the innocence that's a structural innocence it doesn't have to do with what this person did Uh, and i think that's a brilliant insight into this thing because increasingly because we have to now find victims that we can feel okay about victimizing we tend to choose ones that are morally culpable so we confuse their moral culpability with this scapegoating process so that we don't notice that it's scapegoating we could find the worst criminal in the world and if we use that person's criminality in order to generate a complete unanimity uh and and restore social order at his or her expense they're innocent regard that person's innocent regardless of the of the criminality of the behavior so i'm just saying here you have it and even more perhaps illuminating story again it's one I've talked about here in the past is in the book of Numbers the Israelites settle in the in uh, the region of Shittim the sons of Israel begin to cohabitate with the daughters of Moab the Moabites there's intermarrying going on the Israelites are not only marrying the Moabites but they are bowing down before the ball of Peor, which was a a Moabite or Canaanite fertility god, and engaging in these fertility rituals. So uh, this was a great source of offense. Yahweh, it says, we say, Yahweh's anger blazed up. And Yahweh said to Moses, In order to rectify the situation, I want you to impale all the leaders of Israel in the sun before everybody.